Hey there, Stephanie here. Before you listen to this amazing episode, we have something to ask you. Do you feel like you've been stagnating in your current position as a Ruby on Rails developer? Working on projects that aren't getting you to the next level? Stuck in a mid-level position? Have you been applying to jobs and getting rejected? It can be hard to improve your skills outside of your work, but what if you knew exactly how to get your software engineering skills to the next level. Now you can get hands-on experience with designing and architecting production-grade Ruby applications in our workshop. We are going to launch our software design workshop soon. Go to hexdevs.com workshop and get on the waitlist today. Enjoy the episode! Ernesto Tagwerker is the founder and CTO at FastRuby.io and Ombu Labs. He is the maintainer of Database Cleaner, Bundler Leak, and Next Rails. He just told us today that FastRuby has recently inherited other important Ruby code quality projects, such as Rails Stats, Metric Foo, and Ruby Critic, which is a great gem. We watched your talk in a previous watch party. Uh, the talk is named Escaping the Tar Pit. Thank you so much for such a great talk. People got surprised with the gems that you mentioned. So many gems you can use to improve code quality. So that's really amazing. And yeah, welcome Ernesto. It's so great to have you on the show. Hey, Tiago uh, and Stephanie, thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, also for hosting a watch party for my talk on code quality and skunk. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. And by the way, what else has gotten people surprised by your talk? Do you have that information? Yeah, I think I've gotten some really positive feedback from a lot of developers. I presented this talk in the Philadelphia Ruby meetup, uh, RubyConf US, RubyConf Australia, and I got a bunch of comments from people and mostly positive. And some comments uh, from people who don't believe in code coverage. So yeah, that definitely stood out because I believed like code coverage as a metric has always been something that adds value and builds trust in an application. And knowing that 70% of the code is covered by tests uh, usually is a good thing in my book. But there are some people out there that don't believe that and that sometimes you know they have had bad experiences where they had a an application that had 90 percent code coverage and then they opened the test suite and it just looked it was exercising the code but it was not expecting anything from the code yeah i guess there are outliers out there of people who have gamed the code coverage metric but i don't believe that takes the value away from that metric. And escaping the tar pit is mainly focusing on churn, complexity, and code coverage. By combi combining all these metrics, the idea is that you can get insights from your code base and know what things you can improve next to reduce tech debt in your project. It's interesting that you mentioned people that don't, don't like uh, this metric very much, code coverage. We also have to be careful with uh, the test suite because it's still code, right? It's not just some crazy code that you write just to do some search. So 
the test suite is also code, so it should be good code, right? So this is one of the problems that I see sometimes where people treat their tests not with the same care and consideration compared to their code. For sure, yeah. In terms of you know running a test suite that is um, a good test suite, it's like, yeah, what is a good test suite? Sometimes you do have like really good code coverage, uh, let's say 80%, but the test suite fails one or seven times out of 10 times that it runs because it has flaky specs in there. You, you need to be careful about the quality of the test suite as well, so that you can trust that it executes and it tests the behavior of your code, but also it doesn't frustrate you when you're trying to run it and you need to like rerun and rerun and rerun that's definitely something you want to avoid and uh, definitely improve if, if you find that in your application for sure and one of the things that is also important is the performance of the test suite because like you mentioned sometimes you have flaky tests and you want to run the test suite on ci or on your computer but then it takes a long time like 40 minutes an hour to run and then something fails and then you have to run it again. It's kind of annoying. Is there any tip you can share to maybe improve the performance, like run tests in parallel, things like that? Yeah, that's usually what we see in our clients. Um, at fastruby.io, we work with clients that have been running Rails for the past 10 years. So as time goes by, their test suite takes longer and longer. So what they end up doing is um, parallelizing their test suite to run in multiple shards or jobs. And that way they reduce the total time that it takes to get the feedback from their test suite. But uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, advice in that sense. I think it's important and there are definitely gems out there that help you see which scenarios in your test suite are the least performant. If anything, if you notice that your test suite is super slow, find gems that can tell you like which ones, which uh, scenarios are the slowest ones. Sometimes the the slowness is because you're tr consuming like a third-party API that you shouldn't. Funny story, I once did that and ended up finding a security hole in an API that I was using. But uh, yeah, don't do that. Try to stub and mock all those third-party services so they don't have to slow down your test suite. Ernesto, let's say that I'm a developer that is working on a code base that I simply know it is a mess, but I have no idea how to get out of it, how to get started. Maybe the tests are in that situation that we are just discussing now. And the easiest solution is to find another job. What would you say is another alternative? What would you advise me? Yeah, um, oh, that's a good question. I, th I think the main thing is to think about why are you in the tar pit? Like, why is it so hard to ship small changes? Why is it that you tweak small things in your application and seven different things break? Why is it so hard to find root causes for bugs? And that ideally will tell you like, okay, there are a bunch of things that are wrong with your code base. I wouldn't recommend that you take like three months to pay off all the technical debt. Uh, I don't think that's a good approach to say, um, yeah, I'm going to take three months to fix all the technical debt and then everything's going to be fine because it's a 
it's basically a habit that you need to build in your team. And sometimes you do need, uh, oh, actually, all the time you need management approval to say every week or every sprint, we're going to dedicate 10, 20% of the sprint to paying off some of the technical debt. If management in your company is not open to something like that, to like gradually pay off, you know, 20 minutes, an hour of technical debt in every sprint, I think then, yeah, maybe you do need to find another job or you need to continue to try to communicate why it's important to pay off technical debt because we write Ruby code and we understand that programmer happiness is very important. And Ruby gives us great tools to write code that makes us happy. But of course, as the application evolves uh, and as many hands start you know, submitting changes and all that, there's always a possibility that it will become super complicated and super hard to maintain. You know, they're very small things, and I really like uh, Ben Orenstein's uh, Code Quality Challenge. Um, he has this initiative where you can do one thing at a time, and it's just like 20 minutes, and you do this thing for 20 minutes, and then, okay, you paid off a little bit uh, of the technical debt. It could be something as small as, okay, we have a test suite. We want to see what the code coverage percentage is, so we're going to add you know this snippet of code and at the end of every ci run it's just going to tell us code coverage is 50 percent or 51 percent but adding that change should take you less than 20 minutes and that gives you an idea of where you are in terms of code coverage another thing that you could do after that is to add skunk to your project and say okay after you get code coverage for the test suite run skunk and tell me which files are the most complex and have the least coverage. And of course, these are all like research activities that you can do to kind of uh, find your location in a map. And once you know your location, you can actually take uh, decisions to move in the right direction and slowly pay off uh, technical debt. I like the approach of doing small things in a consistent basis because if there is if it is something that it's not already part of the culture you probably don't want to try to force everyone to do it i don't know every day or every week something like that i also liked how you suggest just doing something small that you can do without perhaps even needing approval from management I believe that that one of the main reasons is it's not the priority of the company. Do you think it's possible to do it even without having any support from your team? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's definitely not the best path, but if you don't get approval from management, if they're like, no, we're, we're gonna continue with our approach of, you know, dedicating two sprints a year to pay off technical debt. What you can do is with every change you ship or which with every patch that you ship, you can slowly pay off technical debt. It's going to take you a little longer, but let's say you're fixing a bug. So you use TDD, you write the test first to reproduce the issue, and then you fix it. And then that's a very small way to ship not just the patch, but also tests that you know, make sure that there's no regression in the future. Uh, if there's no test suite and 
you want to do this, basically just start with very small tests that just test that one method that's failing and boom, you have like a test suite. It only covers like 1% of your code base, but at least 1% is higher than 0%. So that's, that's great. If you're working on changes that are like a little bit more involved, what you can do is gradually change some of the portions of code that you're, you're touching. So, you know, like the, it's called the boy scout rule or where you go in and you do your thing, but then when you come out, you, the, the, the code is better than when you started doing the thing you were doing. So let's say you had to touch, you had to touch a file that has a thousand lines and maybe while doing your work, you notice like, oh, well, there are clearly two responsibilities in this file. So break it down into two files. And now you have two files of 500 lines, which is a little more manageable. Now, of course, some managers and some code reviewers are gonna go and say like, why are you doing this? Like your task was to fix this button. And you can be like, well, yeah, it was to fix the button, but I also wanted to improve the code base. And I mean, ideally you won't get in trouble for it because ideally you are reducing complexity and making things simpler. But if you do get in trouble for it, yeah, it might be a good time to find a, a new job. And my company's hiring, you know, and we appreciate people who go the extra mile. So <laughs> feel free to look us up. Yeah, for sure. So if you're listening and you're working at a place that don't don't appreciate good code quality, you can just talk to Ernesto and get a job at FlashRuby. I, I really like your approach because it's easier to lead by example. So if you're working at a place that doesn't have great engineering culture and they don't care much about tests, I, I had that experience in the past and it's kind of annoying. And the only thing I could do was I had to lead by example. It's kind of tiring and frustrating, but whenever I worked on something, I tried to add at least a bit, a little bit of tests and do some refactoring and things like that. It's not always possible, of course, but I think that everybody appreciates when you add tests, you know, even if they don't do that, even if your peers, they don't really write tests or they say, oh, we don't have the time or whatever if there's no culture uh, related to that, but they always appreciate it. So they say, oh, you added some tests here, that's great. And they they even talk about it later. Oh, did you see uh, uh, the tests for this code base? And then they start learning more about it, but I think everybody likes it. Everybody appreciates uh, tests. Yeah, leading by example is, a, is another idea. Yeah, I wonder, I wanted to ask you folks um, about that. Like, have you ever tried following this approach and you found that the person reviewing it or your boss did not appreciate it? Because as I said, this takes more time. So maybe you took four hours instead of one hour, or maybe you took like two days instead of like two hours. Uh, but did you ever experience like pushback whenever uh, this happened? In my experience, it was actually harder than that. I was still learning the best practices for testing. I knew they, they weren't testing the behavior that much. Like I didn't trust the tests that much, but also I didn't know how to improve them a little bit. So it, it was extra hard for me because I wanted to improve but I also didn't have the support or yet the, the knowledge to do it. And I think maybe that might even be one of the main reasons why 
it's extra harder sometimes for, for some people, depending where they are working is I do have the drive. I do know this is not good, but I, I don't know, but I am the one who cares. Yeah. I think, um, you know, as, as developers, you know, we're, who are getting into a project or a new client that we're working with, we're always eager to fix things, right. And to make things better. And sometimes, yeah, it is hard to balance the fact of like, okay, you're learning a new system and not just a new system, a new culture, new best practices, new code style, all, all of that. So it's like, okay, how long does it take for you to learn like the way a team works and an application was built? And the minute you start submitting like this small changes to pay off what you think is technical debt. That's why I like the idea of like establishing kind of like a baseline of code quality and saying like, okay, these are the tools we're going to use. We're going to use Rubocop. We're going to use um, Ruby critic and we're going to use simple to judge quality in like the changes and in the code base. Uh, and I think only after you've set a baseline, you can probably be more comfortable about the changes that you think will move the project in the right direction. Everybody has the same understanding, but yeah, I think it, it is hard to, to, to adapt your own ideas to like someone else's project. And especially as a consulting shop, like we are, we have a hard time with that. And we just need to make sure that we respect the, the practices that our clients have. It's interesting that you mentioned you develop software for clients and do you have to convince them that tests are important? Do you need a budget for tests or do you just say, oh, I'm going to build this feature. I'm going to upgrade your Rails version. The tests are kind of included in the budget. Well, we are a consulting shop and we work on two types of projects mainly. Like we build new applications for companies and entrepreneurs that have an idea and want us to build it. For that sort of project, we certainly ship code, but also code comes with test suites. So we don't even mention it when we're talking about it, but if there's someone technical in the client side and they want to know how we work, it's like we ship code, but we also ship a test suite with it to make sure that the behavior you know, is always uh, the same. Now for Rails upgrade projects, uh, the things that we do is we don't really touch the test suite that much, to be honest. Um, we might tweak little things, but an ideal project for us is a project where we change all the libraries underneath the application and some of the code that uses the Rails API and Ruby API. And the test suite continues to pass, you know, in Rails 4.2 and Rails 5.0. So we don't really write a lot of tests for the Rails upgrade projects. Uh, we do have like a pretty high threshold where we tell our clients if they don't have 70% or more in terms of code coverage, we can't really take on their project. Uh, and we do that because we learned, <laughs> we learned the lesson in previous projects where we took on clients that had 50% code coverage and we presented our estimates and then our estimates were off because manual QA took a way longer time than just running the test suite, uh, an automated test suite. We, we only take clients that have like a solid, solid test. 
Uh, and it's not just about code coverage for us. Like it usually means like if we're talking to a potential client that doesn't have a test suite, coverage is zero percent. It's a major red flag for us. Uh, it's not just tech debt. It's probably culture debt. It's probably like you know communication debt, tooling debt, <laughs> and what we usually propose to these sort of clients is to work with us to create a test suite that tests like the critical flow of the application. But uh, so far, nobody has taken us up on that offer. <laughs> I found it really clever how you filter out the clients. And all that I can think of is that would be a great question to ask in a job interview. We usually ask how is the tech debt culture, if we get there, but usually it's how is the team culture, but it would be really good to ask how good is the test coverage? How is the culture with tests? I never thought of asking that, but I, I think it could also be applied to job interviews. Yeah, I think that would be a, a good idea. I know that there are tools out there like Code Climate and Code Scene um, that help you know, clients and projects have like uh, an eye on the code quality of the application. But when I built Skunk, the idea was very ambitious, of course, to say, okay, maybe in the future, someone will say, what is your Skunk score average? You know, I would love to know your code coverage percentage, but also your Skunk uh, skunk score average. And that way you would know a little bit more about the application you're getting yourself into. One question I definitely would recommend to people who are considering a job is to ask the potential company, what version of rails and Ruby they're using in production. Um, in fast Ruby.io, we talk to a lot of companies out there that are running like rails three, two, four, two. And they've been around for 10 years or more. Some of them are determined to upgrade and they work with us. And some are okay just having a very old version of Rails. But yeah, that that is definitely like a signal to consider when accepting or rejecting a, a job offer. Do you see any differences in the business? So for example, companies that are okay having an older version of Rails, are they tech companies? Are they sales companies or companies that do something that is not tech or maybe they don't have a product? Do you see any differences in, in the mindset versus the business side of things, how, how they do things, what they sell? Not really. I mean, we don't specialize in any industry. If anything, we specialize on JavaScript, uh, React.js and Ruby and, and Rails. So we're very much tech focused and not so much industry focused. Um, we definitely work with companies that have from one engineer in their develop and their development team to 500 engineers in their engineering department. I would say it's probably more common in smaller companies with smaller engineering teams that are focused on shipping changes, uh, patching bugs, they have a roadmap and technical debt is seen as a distraction as in, oh, we will pay off, we'll pay it off later. Like this is not a priority. We really need to ship this for, you know, Black Friday. So we're gonna focus on tech debt later. 
but usually later never comes. Anyway, but yeah, I definitely have seen a lot of these issues, not just in small companies, but also like huge companies out there. I think it's it's probably like a cultural problem, like uh, teams focusing on shipping things and the roadmap and technical debt kind of takes a backseat. And sometimes you see like these, oh, we're going to take one or two weeks or a whole I don't think a whole month is reasonable, but like, let's take two weeks, everybody working on tech debt and let's bring it down, but once a year. And I think that's a bad strategy. I think it's more important to have that built in in every sprint a little bit. So yeah, I think companies that have that in embedded in their culture are better companies to, to join. One thing that Stephanie talked about, about the interview thing, Something that I've seen is sometimes the company has, let's say, good teams and bad teams. So one of the teams, you know, they have a good tech lead and they care about code quality and testing. But then in other teams, they don't care as much. And so you're like, oh, I joined the company, I interviewed for this team, but then you're working on another project that doesn't really have any code coverage. So it can be misleading sometimes to ask about the code quality because you're never sure where you're going to land, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably talking about like huge companies. I think there are also like a ton of companies out there that only have one Rails monolith. Yeah, you'll get more or better information. And, and even if you're joining a huge company, I think you would probably be okay asking like, information about the component that you're going to be working on to get an idea of what version of Ruby and Rails you're, you're working on. I need to actually improve the way that we sell our Rails upgrade services because I think we're still doing a, a pretty bad job at communicating like the non-technical results that you can get by upgrading. And one of them is definitely like people related. Like nobody wants to work on a Rails 4 application. Uh, nobody wants to join like a, a team that's running Rails 3 because every time you need to fix something, it's like you have to go on these archeological expedition to find the API for the current or the old version of Rails. Um, so one of the things that I mention in my sales calls is that if you upgrade to Rails 6.1, it's going to be easier to hire people. And right now, you know, the market is crazy for tech talent out there. So these little things make a difference. And people want to work in departments and applications that are not constantly in, on fire. Uh, people want to work 40 hours a week or less. I think tech debt is tightly coupled with the with that idea of programmer happiness and not being a firefighter in, in your job. And not only hiring people, but also keeping the good people, right? Attrition rate, because no one wants to work on a, an old code base full of problems. I agree a lot. And also from the perspective of the majority of people that are still in the mid-level career, you want to work on the new things. You want to keep your skills sharpening, you know, you don't want to stay stuck working on old things because you're probably getting stuck in your career. It's going to be harder to get out of that work. 
and it's really interesting how showing that in the terms of hey if you don't take this decision now even though it doesn't it might not make sense now it's just part of the long-term planning that's really clever in Ernesto you mentioned skunk which is the gem that you created and from all the gems that we mentioned in the beginning, Rails Stats, Metric Full, Ruby Critic. Is this skunk your the only one that you created? Or did you also create another one? Yeah, it's definitely the the one I created and has been the most popular. Uh I've created other gems in the past, um, but they weren't that popular. Um but uh, yeah, recently we found ourselves kind of becoming co-maintainers co of Ruby gems that have been abandoned uh, by their previous maintainers, uh, or you know that the maintainers that were currently working on them moved on to something else. Um, so Ruby Critic, um, I started contributing to it, and I thought it was a really cool idea, and I started trying to fix a couple of things, and when I was building Skunk, I wanted to combine complexity and churn data with um, code coverage. There are two great articles by, one by Michael Feathers, another one by Sandy Metz, where they talk about this idea of the churn versus complexity graph and in order to find insights about a code base, right? which is awesome because you can quickly see which files are the most changed and the most complex. And you're like, okay, I probably want to stay away from, from those if I'm just starting on the project. And then I thought it would be awesome to add a third dimension uh, in code com complexity. So instead of seeing like a 2D graph with churn and complexity, it would be more kind of like a, a cube, I guess. Uh, never got to build the UI for it. So right now it's only like a terminal table that is uh, printed and it basically ranks the files from stinkiest to nicer smelling code. Um, but yeah, anyway, the idea was not to criticize someone's application, but it more about finding the files that need the most attention. Um, and I thought, okay, what about combining churn times complexity times a lack of co coverage? Um, and that's how Skunk was born. I decided to tightly couple it to Ruby Critic. So Skunk uses Ruby Critic to work. <laughs> that's why I became a maintainer of Ruby Critic. Uh, for Rails stats, um, so there's you know the native rake stats uh, that comes with Rails, which is pretty cool. But sometimes it's hard when we're trying to assess a code base and we have to bundle it and run you know bundle exec rake stats. It sometimes it's harder than you would think because these are huge applications and not all of them use Docker. Um, but anyway, Rails Stats is a tool that lets you see uh, the same statistics for a Rails application without actually uh, having to bundle the application and, and start the environment. 
Um, and one thing that we want to do in that gem soon is combine it with bundler stats in order to get an idea of the size of a Rails application. And that way we would, we would have the number of gems, number of total gems, and all the statistical information on the models, views, and controllers. And then metric foo. Uh, 10 years ago, I went to a Ruby conference in New York and I saw someone, you know, showing metric foo. I thought, oh, that's a really neat idea. Uh, really cool that it runs a bunch of tools against your code base and it generates a bunch of reports. But yeah, 10 years later, I wanted to use it again because I was considering it as a tool that I would use uh, to create skunk uh, on top of. Uh, but it wasn't maintained, so I started making contributions. And Ben, who was the last maintainer of the project, was open to adding a co-maintainer. And uh, yeah, me and my company started uh, co-maintaining the project recently. And, and if you go to the wiki page for Metric Foo, you're actually going to find a table with like more than 30 other gems that are out there that are all about code quality. So I think the... The hard part about code quality is that I would say we have way too many tools and way too many ways to define a baseline for our applications quality. But it's actually pretty cool that we have so many options in the Ruby ecosystem. Because if, if you compare it to other ecosystems, they don't have as much stuff than, than we do, right? So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. It is, though, a little shocking that so many tools have been abandoned on the code quality front. I think like maybe seven years ago or seven to 10 years ago, there was a lot of focus on it. And it does feel like in the past five years, uh, those projects have been abandoned and there's been no uh, progress in many of them. Yeah, this is something I was talking about with Stephanie because I remember five, seven years ago, like you mentioned, there were so many projects, so many talks about code quality, code coverage and all of that. And it feels like things changed a bit and I'm not sure why. And then I wanted to ask you, do, do you have any insights into that? Why are people not talking about code quality as much anymore? Or maybe I'm not in the right places, so I don't know. No, I think you, you're probably in the right place. Uh, is I don't think people are talking that much about it or working on it actively. I think Ruby Critic is probably the, the best tool out there and the one that's getting the most attention. So if um, any of your listeners want to use one of these tools, I would recommend to try Ruby Critic um, and then maybe Skunk, you know, but the barrier of entry for Skunk is a little higher because you need to run simple cop first and then you can run Skunk. But yeah, going back to your question, I don't know why people are not actively working on this that much and why there isn't that much content about code quality and Ruby anymore. Hopefully it is because people are using tools like Code Climate and Code Scene and maybe they're just adopting the defaults that are in those tools, which is okay. You know, like if you want to use those tools, that is awesome. Go for it. They will help you pay off technical debt and focus on, on having a measurable 
uh, measurable way to, to do it. I think maybe the quality, the quality department or the quality area has been more reactive than proactive for many companies. So it's like, oh, performance started crawling. Like what's, what's going on? Okay. We need to find bottlenecks. Okay. Let's focus on performance now or you know, oh, the developers are taking too long to ship stuff because the code is a huge mess. Oh, okay, let's spend uh, four sprints trying to pay off technical debt and then that will fix it, um, which is, as I said, like a bad idea. Um, but yeah, I think we are very much reactive as as an industry. And I think maybe we need to be a bit more proactive um, and if you don't want to use code climate or code scene, you can, you know, adapt some of these tools. I know like there are certain tools that are very much up to date and adopted, like Rubicop is adopted and it's a great way to make sure that you don't have silly discussions about code style in a pull request. You just have Rubicop and Rubicop takes care of it. Uh, standard is, you know, another take on Rubicop, but it's still like based on Rubicop. And then there are other tools. So some people also like to use things like Reek uh, that will basically run with overcommit. So every time someone tries to commit a code that is stinky, according to Reek, they will have that in place. Um, so I think maybe it's because people are picking like one or two tools and just applying them to their um, to their checks for every pull request. That would be really cool. Maybe that is one of the scenarios, hopefully. And I still, you already mentioned the gems again, and I would like to ask you as a community, how can we support these gems better? You, I know that the best way is to contribute more, but is that, is there something specific? Like maybe do you need people to just use it now and give you feedback. How how can we help the community by supporting the gems that you maintain? Yeah, uh, I think using some of these gems would be amazing. Um, yeah, like you said, contributing can sometimes take a long time and can be a little scary, but um, trying to use it, trying to use any of these tools like metric foo, um, rail stats, um, Ruby critic and skunk, uh, would be awesome because if you find any issues, then we can quickly assess why it's happening and try to fix it. Um, another thing that you can do is if you run skunk, um, there's a little environment variable that you can set, uh, like it's called share. If you set share to one and you run Skunk on an open source project, uh, and then it reports back to a little service that we have running that's also open source. It's called it's called um, Skunk FYI. Um, that gives us more information to work on version 1.0. Uh, I think for ver version 1.0 of Skunk, what we wanna do is change the Skunk score grading system to something that's easier to understand. So it seems like the 
grade A to grade F is the way to go. Like Ruby Critic does it, Code Climate does it, and I think Skunk should do it too, so that when people run the tool, they can see, you know, oh, this is an A, this is an F, this is a D, and it's easier to understand like the information that's throwing at you. Because some right now when you run it, it says like, oh, the Skunk score for this file is 15,000. And one of the questions that I've gotten at conferences is like, what does that even mean? What is, is 15,000 good or bad? And I want to give more context and say like, yeah, 15,000 is probably bad. So please uh, consider refactoring it. I'm curious to know, how did you get started with contributing to open source? Do you remember the first one and how was it? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, the first project was a Ruby wrapper for a service called Topsy. And they were acquired by Apple many years ago. But uh, I really like the idea of building wrappers in Ruby for APIs. And I worked for about a week and I released it. And then a week went by and someone else wrote the same gem and released it. And I was like, oh, what a bummer. Someone just did the same thing that I did, but they did it better because they added a test suite to the project. And I, yeah, it was a bummer at the beginning, but then I reached out to them on Twitter. And to this, to this day, I can say that we're friends thanks to open source. So anyway, if you want to get started with open source and you know an API that's cool and you want to use it to do some sort of mashup, I think that's also like a great way to, to get started with uh, open source because Ruby wrappers are pretty easy to write. And there are a ton of examples in GitHub. Like you can just search for like the Twitter API, Ruby wrapper, and you can just copy and paste a lot of the code in there to create your own wrapper. Um, but yeah, I, uh, anyway, I, I love open source and for 10 years I've been doing this and I know it's hard for people who are just starting. So I think using the tools and reporting back any issues that you have is a great way to get started to contribute to open source. And another way to get started is if you like one of these tools and you want to run or write a tutorial or your own experience running one of these tools and what you learned with them, uh, you know, you can create an article and that helps us get more eyeballs and more people using the tools. And hopefully the eyeballs turn into more issues as well. Yeah, that's a, a good advice. One thing that really surprised us when we decided to just explore Rails was we didn't set a lot of expectations. We, we got there just, okay, what can we do here? We learned quite a few interesting things just by trying to reproduce issues, for example. I think that starting with a project just as a way to explore and setting your expectations really low kind of help, because then you discover some things and it makes things more exciting, I guess. Yeah, and you know, 
some people wouldn't recommend uh, new developers or you know junior developers to start contributing to Rails because Rails is a beast and you know it's amazing. I love Rails and I love everybody contributing to it, but it's it's very hard to get started with something there that is code based. One thing that you can do, and I've actually done it myself, is go through the documentation and improve the documentation. There's so much room for improvement in the Rails docs that um, if you want to make like a tiny contribution to Rails, that could be a good way to get started. Um, and the more you look at the documentation, the easier it's going to get to eventually make a code contribution to Rails. Still, I would not recommend people start with Rails. I would recommend they start with a small gem that they might be using or uh, yeah, so something that's small and easy to, to understand. Yeah, that's a great, great tip. One thing that I guess it was Guy, a friend of ours, he came on the podcast a long time ago. He said, if you want to contribute, maybe use, maybe just get a gem and then use the latest Rails version, you know, Rails 7.1 beta or whatever, and then see if it breaks, if the test suite breaks, and then you can just fix it. So that's kind of an easy way to contribute to other projects because the API, the Rails API changes, so it's good to keep things up to date. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea, and I've actually implemented it myself on these some of these tools. That's kind of how I got involved in some of them because I wanted to see if they work with Ruby 3. And, you know, Ruby 3, it's almost been a year, but there are many libraries out there that are not running their test suite against Ruby 3. And there's certainly a great way to, to find issues with a gem. And even if you don't find an issue, you can just submit a pull request, including Ruby 3.0 in their CI configuration. And it's just telling them like, hey, you were missing this. Gem works with Ruby 3.0. <laughs> and it's like a very quick way to make a contribution. So just getting back to the code quality discussion, I'm kind of fascinated by legacy applications because at the same time that people are usually angry at legacy code, you know, they say, oh, it's terrible, it's all crap and all of that. But at the same time, it's usually a sign that people are using the product, which is something that is very valuable for a company to have people actively paying and using your software. And then people are very negative about legacy applications. And I, I think that the tips that you are sharing and then using these tools and you know learning more about these techniques from Michael Feathers and Sandy Metz can help you be more positive about working with legacy code because you're contributing to something that helps people. You kind of have to change your mindset about legacy code, right? Did you ever have to change your mindset about something? Do you see legacy code in a positive way? How do you kind of approach uh, that? Yeah, I agree with you. Like their legacy code gets a bad rap, but you know, if you think about it, uh, Shopify 
is running legacy code <laughs> and they're making millions of dollars and sure they're running the latest of rails and ruby but um yeah if you think about it it's been a, if an application has been around for 10 years and there's a whole company counting on it it is deemed to be legacy code to me it just means like this is a business that works and at the end of the day they can pay me to uh, have a salary basically <laughs> so and i can use the time that they pay me for to to make it better i really like this idea of makers and menders um, my friend m scott ford who runs another podcast i think it's called legacy code rocks he likes to talk about the idea that you know engineers usually are either makers or menders <laughs> and either you like to build something from scratch or you like to mend something that already exists i'm more of a mender than a maker um, sure i built my company so in a way i like to make businesses in a way but some people in my company are more makers than menders so what we want to do in my company is to have projects for makers and for menders. Um, but if I had to pick myself, I would pick the mender projects because I like to gradually improve, you know, the infrastructure of an application or to improve their processes. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's important to make that definition between, you know, what you want to do with your career and what they want you to do at work you know and sometimes you know you'll just want to mend things and sometimes you know other people will just want to make things and that's okay um what i like about legacy code is that it, it's working and it's been working for many many years and sure it can be enhanced and improved there's probably a test suite and the test suite is going to tell me i changed something and i try to pay off technical debt and I broke it. So yeah, I, I really like legacy code. And I know there are a ton of people out there that love to work on legacy code too, even when it gets a bad rap. But it's funny because you don't hear much about it, right? So there are people out there working on legacy code, making things better, and you don't hear about it because it's working, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like you're doing important work, but maybe you don't get as much visibility when you're doing that yeah i guess it's it's definitely not sexy like it's not like oh i i built this uh javascript framework to you know solve this problem it's no it's definitely not not <laughs> sexy and maybe if people write about it their reach is not that that big but there's de definitely like a microcosm of people who are writing articles about legacy code and maintainability yeah i actually love to be in that little microcosm i guess but i really love the analogy that you mentioned menders versus makers and i think when you get a maker an engineer who is a maker and tells this person to mend software i think the the knee-jerk reaction they have is oh i'm gonna throw everything away and build everything from scratch you know the big rewrite and things like that and it's always usually doomed to failure right so maybe you can't 
do that. So don't put a maker to man your projects. Uh, well, there's this book by Fred Brooks, and I think it was published in the 70s. And one of the chapters of the Mythical Man Month is called something like The Joys and Woos of the Craft. And he actually goes on to say, like, yeah, you know, like, building something is like accessing like the creative part of your brain it's like that's full of joy because you're like in a state of flow you're trying to solve a problem you're trying to build something new so it's like oh everybody's joy there and then the woos or like the the bad, bad part is like fixing bugs you know and he assumes that nobody likes to fix bugs i think that's a wrong assumption like i think there are like many people out there that love to solve puzzles and love to basically dig into a bug and go deep into the stack trace and try to find it. Anyway, I think like we need to add this to our lingo and to say, just because you're a software engineer doesn't mean that you enjoy building stuff, stuff from scratch. Like there are plenty of software engineers that just wanna go to an established team and maybe improve that code base to work better for the end user or the developers. I know, Ernesto, you have lots of things to do. Uh, just wanted to ask if there is something that you would like us to have asked that we didn't. Well, yeah, considering you're from Brazil and I'm from Argentina, I was actually expecting we could talk a little bit more about soccer and the America's Cup and the last final that Brazil and Argentina played, but I know it's not topic it's not the topic we're discussing today but um, i have time to discuss that if you want <laughs> yeah i think you we we're probably the worst people to talk about this because i have no idea about soccer at all <laughs> <laughs> i don't really watch soccer <laughs> sorry <laughs> okay yeah even if you knew uh i would expect that answer anyway so no worries <laughs> carnival soccer it's we're not very into <laughs> that kind of stuff, but we can talk about food. So food is <laughs> our passion. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, anyway, no, it was great to be here. And uh, yeah, if uh, anybody wants to see some of the work that we do, uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter. Yeah, my handle is eTacWorker. And I usually just repost uh, content from the company. Thank you so much, Ernesto. That was a great talk i loved learning so much things from you so thank you so much for sharing your experience and your skills and insights and we will make sure to put the gyms in the episode notes so everyone can at least take a look ernesto is a really nice guy and you can say you you met him from the podcast everyone go check them out yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ernesto, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your work as well. So these genes are really important and, you know, having someone to take over and continue the work is really important, really relevant for the community. And it's also nice to finally meet you because we, we worked in the same projects in the past, but we never really met. I, I, I always saw your picture on Git, but I never got to talk to you. So yeah, it's really, really amazing to, to meet you and thank you so much. Okay. I, I hope it's all, all good things and you didn't have to fix all the bugs that I added before I left. <laughs> you should run Skunk 
and report the yeah. stock score, Tiago. Yes, oh, please, yeah. <laughs> please do that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. We put lots of love into the HexDevs podcast and we hope you learned something insightful. Before you go on with your day, could you share this episode with a friend or a colleague? That would help us a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to get exercises, tools, insights to help you become a Ruby expert developer. See you on the next episode.